Hi everyone, this is Alex Van Atkins here and welcome to uh, GSA Office Hours. So in this episode, Helene and I talk with Dave De La Fuente, who's a PhD candidate in systematic theology. Uh, we wanted to uh, check in with Dave to see how uh, the transition in his, to remote learning and his faith in critical reasoning was going. Um, but we also covered a range of other topics, uh, starting with um, Dave's early interest in political science and specifically voter behavior and how that sparked his interest in religious values. We covered uh, his experience at Boston College, uh, receiving his master's in theology, and how there he uh, learned to really appreciate how important um, culturally diverse learning environments are. We talked a bit about his background in medicine uh, before entering the PhD program, uh, where he worked as a patient advocate in uh, cancer uh, practice. So we recorded this podcast about two weeks after spring break, each of us um, working from home. Uh, I was in Springfield, Massachusetts, and Helene and Dave, I believe, were both in New York. Um, so we're hoping to continue recording podcasts as we all work from home. Uh, if you'd like to be featured or if you know someone who'd be a great candidate for the podcast, please reach out to Helene and I at GSA gsa at fordham.edu all right enjoy our conversation yeah okay i guess we can just start um so i'm trying to think um yeah dave i guess if you just want to kind of like introduce yourself where you're from maybe like the moment that you realized you wanted to apply to a phd program just like a little background that will be listening. My name is Dave Del Fuente. I'm the fourth year PhD candidate in systematic theology. Uh, I live in the Bronx with my wife. Um, I, uh, I actually did my undergraduate at Fordham and very quickly discovered that theology was uh, a field that I was really interested in. Um, initially, was, um, it was something I picked up because I, I was interested in political science and especially in voter behavior and election cycles and how religion factors into public discourse. And I realized pretty early on that in order to really dig deeper into um, what values people talk about during election cycles and in general when they debate critical issues, there needed to I needed to have a deeper understanding of the place of religion and specifically, of course, religious and theological values. Um, and at the same time, I realized um, as I was going through the core curriculum at Fordham that my theology classes were a lot of fun. Uh, and so I figured, yeah, I'd pick that up as a secondary major double major, and then by the time I graduated, I realized that my primary interest really was theology, and so from there, I did a master's degree um, and took some time off, worked in healthcare for several years, um, and uh, decided uh, around 2016 that it was time to apply. Um, the area that, I'm, that I specialize in um, is called Trinitarian theology, so reflection on the Christian understanding of God as three persons, quote-unquote Father, Son, Spirit. And especially uh, for me, the, I focus on the third person, quote-unquote, the spirit, um, because with the, that, that figure, um, there's a lot of really interesting religious movements that have come about throughout history. Um, and there's, uh, uh, it's usually through reflection on the spirit that people move into uh, reflection on um, the place of the arts and creativity, the meaning of history, 
uh, and so forth. So um, it's a it's a really interesting field to be in because it opens up a lot of other areas of um, of reflection and inquiry, and um, also because of uh, because it reflects uh, contemporary movements, it, it makes it very practical. Um, so I can use that lens to look at um, uh, subgroups within Christianity, um, the field of Christian spirituality, uh, and and see what's going on there. Okay, I have a lot I want to follow up with. Um, the first kind of like follow-up question is going back to what you started with, how your passion for theology actually was kind of nurtured in the undergraduate classroom, particularly moments that were really fun. Is there um, a course or a professor, an activity um, that kind of like sparked that um, kind of like passion? Yeah, the, the two courses that come to mind were um, I took uh, sophomore year, I took a course on the New Testament, which uh, I am a religious person, um, so I, I have a familiarity with the New Testament, um, and in that course I realized that everything that I thought I understood about the Bible um, actually is not the case, um, that... Um, that if you look closely at the history and the culture, that everything unfolds in a really interesting way, and the meaning is very, very different. Um, and we, we talked especially about the critical points in the New Testament that, that certain people will, will turn to and say, because the text says this, um, this behavior or this identity is out. And we looked closely at the history and the culture and saw that that's not a straightforward thing to say at all. So there's that, um, and, and I realized that, that I can't people can't use the Bible as ammunition, basically. Um, positively, uh, another course was called Art and Christian Values. And so in that class, we looked at uh, community murals in Philadelphia as um, expressions of, uh, of personal values and community values and as a resource for bringing about urban renewal uh, and confronting social realities like racism and sexism. Um, and it also gave us, gave all of the students license to look at the arts that we were interested in. So I had people in class who uh, were dancers at Fordham who um, choreographed pieces or reflected on, on dance pieces or the very active dance as significant for theological reflection. Um, mm -hmm. There were musicians in the class, there were fine artists in the class. And so we were all kind of drawing on um, the space of creativity to make sense of um, what, um, uh, of, of, what the arts can mean in terms of confronting uh, injustice and, and also articulating positive values. Uh, and that, that was really exciting for me, even though I'm not a fine artist or a dancer, just to see that there's so much more that can be said um, and that theology from a certain vantage point gave me the resources to do that. Cool, wow. Um, yeah, that's really cool. Yeah, and so then, did you go right into a master's program, or or was healthcare next for you? Uh, I went straight into a master's program, um, and uh, and then after that was healthcare. Uh, so I went to Boston College, um, the School of Theology there, and did a two year masters, and that was a it was a fun but also tumultuous time. You know, learning how to adult um, mm -hmm. while going deeper into a field of study, um, but that also opened up a lot of vantage points for me and. I think one of the most interesting things about that master's program is that Boston College is a place where people from around the globe come to study um, and do master's programs as well as doctoral programs in the main college at BC. 
And so I was talking about theology now, not just with people from New Jersey or New York or wherever, but um, hearing what, what people from uh, Latin America and Africa and Southeast Asia were saying about what the Bible or what religious uh, practices really mean for them in their context. And that expanded my sense of what, what's available and what's possible and also helped check me against uh, presumptions that I might have had. Yeah, for sure. I found that just in my economics program, having such a uh, cultural diversity in our program is such a, a useful and valuable thing because you have people coming from different backgrounds, different countries, different perspectives and contexts that mm -hmm. add so much to your own learning uh, mm -hmm. of a field of study. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, even something as simple as there's the, there's passages in the New Testament where um, the stories focus on, on kind of farming or agrarian motifs. And someone in, in one of the classes stood up and said, you know, I actually was a farmer in my, in my home village, and this passage doesn't make sense. Uh, <laughs> that's not how you farm. And so it, it was really illuminating um, and, and certainly expanded my understanding. Um, I kind of miss it sometimes. And then what impacted your decision to go into healthcare, and what specifically were you doing um, in the hospital or? Mm -hmm. um, so that was actually, I mean, theologically, we would call it providence because it was not intended at all. Um, I had sent a round of doctoral applications and um, was not happy with the places that I got in. And in real life, I was also about to get married. So I figured that would be a good time to maybe figure out real life first, uh, as best as I can, uh, set a, kind of a baseline in, in terms of what married life would look like. Um, and so I um, sent out a bunch of job applications to traditional areas um, that people would go into with a theology degree, like teaching at high schools, uh, campus ministry, and things like that. And for whatever reason, none of those applications materialized. Um, and out of the blue, um, in October of 2012, uh, someone uh, had a lead for me and I applied to it. And I ended up serving as a patient advocate for uh, a cancer practice, uh, surgical oncology practice focusing on cancers of the head and neck, as well as other um, diseases or defects related to that, that kind of area. Um, and what I would do, uh, uh, what I did for those four years was I was in the outpatient office and I would meet with patients after they met with the surgeon if they needed to get surgery and orient them and then serve as a, a reference point for them uh, and as an advocate for them if there were any issues with their insurance uh, and so forth. So it was a bit like being a social worker, even though it wasn't officially a social work job. Wow. Okay. And so you did that for a year or two, two years, you said? Four years. Four years. Wow. Yeah. Okay. And then you reapplied to PhD programs. Right. Okay. Yeah. So I saw that you have some publications that um, actually show intersections between medicine and theology. Yeah. How did, um, was that after your, that four year period or were you working on those publications um, while you were in the hospital? I would say that, um, Probably about halfway through my time in healthcare, I realized that there could be a possibility there. Um, and so on my own, I tried to see what resources were available. Um, and I discovered that um, usually where there's an intersection between medicine and religion or theology, it's usually on the side of ethics. Um, so bioethics, mm -hmm. like, you know, kind of debating um, end of life issues um, and other, other difficult decisions. Um, so there, there's certainly stuff there, but that 
I also saw that they were starting, um, there was a kind of a growing trend of people who wanted to talk about what about spirituality and medicine, or what about thinking uh, about the context as a whole uh, of what doctors do and what healthcare professionals do um, as a resource for thinking about doing theology or thinking about embodiments or thinking about emotions. Um, and so that, that would, the latter areas were the ones that interested me. Um, and when I started the PhD, I figured, you know, there were calls for papers that I would see and I, I would try my hand at it and people found it interesting. So um, I started to pursue those opportunities from there. Yeah, well, definitely relevant to, you know, the pandemic that's going on now. Um, mm -hmm. A lot of articles and um, segments on the news addressing this challenge that physicians are facing in the hospitals today. Um, do you have any thoughts and no pressure, but have you thought about sure. that at all or? Absolutely. So I think, um, one of the, the broad takeaways that I had from my job that influences, um, how I think about being a scholar and being a theologian specifically and being a teacher is, um, medicine as I see it, um, involves like the, it, it, it requires a lot of comprehensive and deep thinking and thinking about systems and thinking about logistics and thinking also about what you possibly don't know and definitely don't know and about what you should do with what you don't know. Mm -hmm. um, and so in light of uh, the COVID-19 crisis, one of the things that um, uh, has become apparent to me is that um, unfortunately the rest of our country um, doesn't understand that part of medicine is recognizing that what you don't know is just as important as what you do know, um, and that you need to respond ethically as best as you can in light of what, what the unknowns are. Um, and I think that once people understand that, that the reality involves a lot of unknowns and variables, um, it becomes easier to accept um, the restrictions that we, that we live under and the, the ethos and, and the communication that a lot of medical professionals are, are, are reinforcing, which is stay home, please, please stay home. Um, yeah, so it's definitely been a, a revelatory time um, in light of that prior, prior experience. Yeah, especially like the responsibility we have to each other and like the um, what is the responsibility of the medical system as a whole. And we've mm -hmm. seen, you know, kind of a spotlight on, on some of the flaws of the system where they're profit, profit maximizing you know, uh, organizations like hospitals need to run their own finances. And that's the way that, that we've chosen to run our medical system. And mm -hmm. as a result, like we're, we're running all the time at 95% capacity. So when things like this happen, there's no room for, or no buffer for what, like what's unexpected or what we don't know. Exactly. Uh, which is just been so, so interesting to think about, like not only our communities, responsibility to each other, but also the responsibility theoretically for our medical system and, and ethically for our medical system and what that would mm -hmm. look like going forward, especially in light mm -hmm. of something like this actually happening. Yeah. And of course, what will complicate that as we move forward is um, shortage and, and, and people supply. Now, I, I, I hate to use the term like people supplies, but the workforce uh, in mm -hmm. healthcare, um, And then, of course, the material supplies that are needed to to provide general care as well as specific care for COVID-19. Um, I, I, um, I, I was communicating with a, a couple of former colleagues and one of the things that, that uh, 
I forgot about is um, dealing with an epidemic is one thing and you have to deal with it, but life goes on for everyone else. There are still people who need um, cancer care, either surgical or other means. Uh, there are still people who need to give birth. Um, so there, there's all these other um, realities that hospitals um, have to respond to. Um, and if we mismanage um, on one level, as you said, like there's not going to be the capacity to to deal with other emergent issues, with other um, life-threatening issues, with other care that, that needs to be rendered, and then everyone else suffers um, even more because of that. Um, mm -hmm. So it's a very complicated thing to think through. Yeah, I guess maybe we'll pivot here um, to maybe the your current role as an instructor. So what course are you teaching right now and how have the has the transition from online teaching uh, been going? Mm -hmm. So this semester I'm teaching Faith and Critical Reason. Um, that's the introductory course in theology. And um, in some ways, I think that the move to um, remote teaching has helped, um, but the challenge there, of course, there are many challenges, but one of the major challenges that, that, I, for, that I, I think my students are experiencing that we're foreseeing is um, we're kind of used to thinking in terms of like college self and then life self, and now there's no such thing as a college self. You're everything, like you're, my whole life is at home, um, and I, I have to figure out how to be my college self while at home to, to have a workflow. Uh, and so it's, it's been a little bit of time um, Kind of figuring out how to make that work, but I think one of the one of the challenges as an instructor um, that I'm trying to meet, and so that it's better for my students, is to think about um, to kind of imagine what people are probably doing at home, and to configure my my instruction and my assignments so that it aligns with that. And so I'm I'm guessing that my students are spending a lot of time reading articles and on Instagram. So I've assigned for them. I'd like you to Instagram specifically create a separate account for this, of course, but let's Instagram um, something that's related to our course. And one of the, the focus points for us is uh, uh, ecological theology. And so uh, even in isolation, I'm asking the students, like, if you've got a yard, if there's a tree, if there's birds, if there's plants inside, um, Instagram once a week about this and see what happens as a result and see what you notice about um, nature and what you appreciate about nature or creation um, and, and use that Instagram medium as a, as a way to track um, its importance for you. So we're trying to do more stuff like that so that it's, it's, it's no longer thinking about how, how, do I be, how do I bring my college self and going to classes and having free time um, uh, into being stuck at home all the time. Uh, and I'm hoping that that continues to unfold in a, in a really nice way. Yeah, I think that's really smart in avoiding the tendency to think how can I translate what we do in class to students sitting in front of a computer to actually think about the students first, what they're already doing, and how can my assignment fit into that. I think that's a very successful like thought exercise. Um, so in the course you teach, Faith and Critical Reasoning, what are like the course objectives? Just so I can kind of situate myself in, sure. in the course. So what, what, what makes it, I'll give a little bit of context and then talk about kind of the objectives that the department um, uh, kind of identifies. Um, 
we we actually make that a very flexible course where every instructor designs the syllabus almost entirely on their own um, and therefore plays to their strengths. Um, we have one shared text, which uh, is Dr. Martin Luther King's letter from Birmingham City Jail, because one of the, the learning objectives that is common, regardless of who the instructor is, is we want students to see that the study of religion or theology, however you approach it, um, is really important for seeing um, how we construct or deconstruct and enact ethics um, and how we understand social organization on the level of religion um, to see and how we understand um, kind of the whole history of religion as something that humans do, whether they call it religion or not. Um, so uh, I think those are the, the overall objectives. Um, what makes it interesting is that each instructor, and even challenging, is that each instructor approaches it according to their strengths. And so no, no two faith and critical reason courses will look the same. Um, I don't, that, yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. So have you, is this your first time teaching the course or have you taught it multiple times in the past? I've, uh, this is my third time now. Um, I've done one mid-level course uh, along with that. Um, and one of the things that I'm trying to do this semester, which probably wasn't the greatest idea, was I used to focus on kind of understanding three religions, Judaism, Christianity, Islam, during the first half of the course to frame what is religion. But then I realized... Um, religion itself is a, is a contested term, um, and there's a lot of problems in saying what counts as religion and what the, what the criteria are. So um, this semester we focused on what are several approaches to religion um, and to see what you gain or lose if you think about religion as a sociological reality, as a psychological reality, etc. Um, unfortunately, I think that that lost some of the concreteness, but um, that, that's kind of how I've approached it differently this semester, at least initially. And then what's common is in the second half, we talk about um, introductory level, like what is theology and how does that fit into how people live their lives today? Um, yeah. That's, that's really interesting. Yeah, I could see where, like, to me, that sounds like so much more intriguing and, um, like, really framing, like, what is religion? How do we have... Um, how do we think about it? But I think for some undergraduates, the concreteness is definitely like necessary where they're like, no, I just want to know what I need to learn and then I can mm -hmm. pass a test for it and keep right. moving. So you always have to like balance that within, within classes like that. Yeah, absolutely. So what was, uh, so Helena and I both have um, experience teaching undergrad courses, but we aren't teaching this semester. So could you talk a little bit more what it was like the, moment you found out that you would have to move your course online and specifically um, what it was like at the very beginning um, maybe learning um, the di like what are the two terms everyone's using um, the, the synchronous and asynchronous yeah could you talk a little bit about the decision that was faced whether to um, have meet virtual meetings or yeah yeah um, so I think uh, um, one of the things that I, I incorporated into my teaching is a, a platform called Perusal. I started doing that last semester um, with a mid-level course that I got to teach. And I continue that this semester because it seemed like a really good means of in, including students who have a lot of anxiety about public speaking. Um, and so that's, that's kind of the foundation of how I evaluate participation. And, and so when, when the cancellation decision came in, 
um, it was it wasn't as difficult to figure out how am I going to meet the asynchronous stuff because my students were already in, in a habit of um, going to the site on their own and, and making their notes uh, for class material. Um, but it was difficult to think about um, you know what what should the expectations be in terms of trying to meet in person um, because the modality is different. And one of the things that I thought about is. Um, even I, as a professional, can't handle watching, um, looking at a screen for, for 40 minutes or longer unless it's something that really grasps my attention. Mm -hmm. and, and so I imagined that for my students, it would be very difficult to kind of replicate how I would operate in class in general twice a week using Zoom or another means. Um, and so one of the first decisions that I made was I was going to reduce the, the, the synchronous meeting kind of expectation um, and even just focus it where it, it points to the asynchronous learning that we have to do. So we're only meeting once a week instead of twice. And when we meet, um, I put us all in Zoom so that people can, can chime in and ask questions, of course. But I, I screencast um, perusal and I say, I don't care if you've caught up with the reading yet or not, but here are the points in the text that I want you to really dig in and to see what other people in class have been saying. We can debate it live as best as we can, but really, really focus on these passages um, and, and see where you go from there. And the onus is on you to, to make sure that you're, you're setting up a schedule for yourself, you're, you're getting into a rhythm um, so that you're getting everything you can, even in this new method. So. Um, it's, it's certainly challenging, um, but I think, um, I think uh, it, in this, from my vantage point as an instructor, it's, it's more important to think about the asynchronous learning and how you can cultivate that. And so, so could, you, oh, sorry. Could, you, could you just explain a little bit more what Perusal is? I've never used it, so it would be helpful to know like exactly what the platform does yeah. and how it works. So Perusal is a social annotation tool that um, uh, our instructional technology folks embed uh, into Blackboard. And the way it works is, um, as an instructor, you would just upload um, PDFs of your readings, and then you could manually assign them to your class according to you know, certain dates. Um, and what you would do from there is you would configure it to say, um, I want you to make four or five comments. And the commenting looks a lot like Google Docs. So if you think about if we were all to open Google Docs and look at one document and comment at the same time, it's the same thing, except it's a PDF. Um, it also gives students the, the possibility of um, commenting anonymously if it's a critical issue or if they're, they're uncertain of themselves. And people can respond to each other um, and, um, and so forth. And the other thing that's cool is as an instructor, um, you can see using perusal um, which passages in each reading students are spending the most time on. Um, you, can, you can see overall like how much time uh, the whole class is spending on reading and that helps you evaluate like that helps me evaluate uh, was that reading too difficult? Um, was it too easy? You know, etc. Um, and then cumulatively um, I can download, export and download all of the students comments over the semester over all the readings and see um, if I wanted to like you know, how has their learning unfolded? And that helps me to really tailor things like recommendation letters and say, this student really nailed it. 
from the beginning to the end, or this student, you know, worked hard, and I saw that, that the, un the understanding unfolded. Mm -hmm. um, so it provides a lot of really cool tools um, that, that help me contextualize um, the readings um, and the students' engagement with the readings. Um, unfortunately, the only challenge is uh, it's, it's staring at screens for a long time. So, right. yeah. I think that sounds great, too, in finding a way to um, level the playing field, particularly in, say, a class participation grade. I don't know if that factors into your grade, but when mm -hmm. I teach rhetoric and composition or a text and context class, I always have class participation be at least 20% of the grade. And if you have students who do all of the reading and are engaged in the readings, but more timid in the classroom, I think a platform like that would really help them feel confident that their participation grade won't um, kind of plummet because them being quiet in class. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I agree. That, and that, that's one thing that I've become very sensitive about that I shouldn't have kind of a, an unfair criteria for what counts as showing that you're engaged. Um, and so this has been a really nifty method that a lot of students have appreciated uh, and said in their, their reviews that like this, this enables them to, to um, still show that they're there even though they, they feel anxiety about public speaking or whatever it is. Mm -hmm. Have you had any issues over Zoom with students like not being able to join your class time or not wanting to show their face or not wanting to um, participate at all? Have you had any issues with that? Yeah, I'd say that the vast majority of my students, um, even when they, they come into our synchronous meetings, are, are, um, are pretty quiet. Um, and that's just, I think that's part of the reality. And, and so um, I, I kind of try to roll with it and, and use the, the focus on perusal, even live in Zoom. So I'll screencast, as I said, to say, like, uh, I'm, even if you haven't thought about this yet, really, really dig into this little section here. Um, in terms of uh, accessibility, um, I do have a couple of students who um, are living internationally again, and the time zone difference is significant. Um, and so, what I've told them is, um, I'll set apart, I'll set aside separate times where we can do one-on-one -on -one or small groups on uh, on Zoom. Um, and I've configured it so that I'm up pretty late most of the time anyway. So I've configured it so that it, it would be morning for them, even though it's late night for me. And, even just a 30 minute check-in is plenty to make sure that they're doing okay. Um, right. so, so they know that they have that option if they can't make our one weekly class. That's awesome. It's like a Zoom version of office hours, like very accommodating. Yeah. I'm sure they appreciate that. And so. Yeah, so what's, well, I'll actually ask this first. Um, how do you feel about Zoom and perusal as digital tools? And have you thought of like any, I wish I had that feature? So if you were to create your own version of t Zoom or like your own digital tool, is there anything you wish you had? Yeah, so I think, um, I think it would be cool to, um, it would be cool if it were easier in Zoom for students to to really like textually contribute. Um, so there, of course there's the chat function, but I'd love to like put up the, the whiteboard on the screen and put up a prompt and then have them kind of live respond and for Zoom to, to gather all of those responses um, and, and kind of collate them for me to read or for everyone to evaluate. 
Um, and that, that doesn't seem to be very easy to do, unfortunately. Um, but that, that seems like it would be a good way to, to, to enable students who are not going to speak up for whatever reason to, to do their participation without, the, the, without having to, to manifest their voice. Um, with perusal, one of the things that would be really cool and helpful in this context is um, if there was a way to embed your own lectures there, um, yeah. it would really help. The way that I've worked around that is, um, it's funny, it rhymes with Zoom, but I don't know if you've heard of Loom. <laughs> no. <laughs> no, I haven't. Loom is a, kind of a screen recording um, uh, platform, and so it, and it gives you some basic um, uh, video editing from there. And so what I do is I, I screencast my 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 lecture project or the lecture slides, and I, I record a lecture, and then I edit that as I need to um, from there. And I generate a link, and I put that in a document like a one-page Word document that I put into my perusal assignment so that the very first thing they see is, all right, here's, here's a link, here are some overall points to think about, and then the next pages are the actual scan of the reading. Um, but it would be so much easier, I think, if it was a one-stop shop so that they move from the lecture into the reading um, all on that platform without having to click a link or move to a different site um, and, then, um, and then annotate from there. Uh, and it would also be helpful to see them annotate on, you know, um, any slides that were unclear to them or any points that they thought were really important in the slides but that weren't necessarily focused on or, or manifest in the reading. So th those are the things that I would be really interested in. Yeah, that makes sense. I think, like, for economics, it's, um, you know, there aren't really as many readings in intro, micro, or intro uh, economics courses. So, like, having a whiteboard feature where you could, like, show graphs or write on the screen or whatever it might be would be super helpful for, mm -hmm. for people. So I should tell my econ people to see if Loom would work for that. Yeah. Yeah. I and do recommend it. Oh, sorry. Oh, I was just going to say, when I teach, I write everything on the board. Um just if it if I start off with an open-ended question sometimes I just wrote like keywords I kind of like draw maps and things like that even though it's a writing class I find that in my experience students don't take out their pen unless you take out the marker and so I oftentimes will like outline or put bullet points from what we're talking about in discussion just so that I know they're going to transcribe important points into their notebooks um, so it's interesting. I hadn't thought of that at all, but I'm sure even after this semester, there's going to be uh, such a spike in the different types of digital platforms and their features, which will be really exciting. Um, have you thought at all about how the next time you teach an in-person course, how you might uh, restructure your syllabus, um, assignments, or lecture or seminar in class, like based on the changes you've made this semester? Mm -hmm. So yeah, I think um, I'm, I'm always evaluating uh, and reevaluating the um, kind of how to measure that eloquencia perfecta, even if I'm not doing an EP seminar um, as a value for students. And I, I keep wondering whether the method of papers, whether it's short papers or long papers, is as efficient and as relevant as it can be. And one of the things that I've been experimenting with is kind of a class version of what Reddit would be, 
Um, so a little discussion board, students uh, in this semester are posting articles about the crisis uh, from a certain aspect, whether it's theological, whether it's healthcare, whether it's related to their career interests. Um, and they comment on it and they have the opportunity to respond to each other. I'm not using Reddit for that because I find that a little too difficult to deal with, but, but um, I, I think that moving forward, I might do more of that as opposed to please write a two to three page paper. Um, because it also, I think, uh, I think in terms of, I, I wanna teach students and encourage students to be critical about sources. Um, and not all of our learning is gonna be, you know, through reading this economist or this literary scholar. It's gonna be reading newspapers and blogs and, and YouTube videos. So um, I think I need to shift a little bit more in that direction um, in terms of kind of the, the techniques that are used. And then in terms of content, I, I'm really discovering that it, um, no matter how interesting theory is, my students want concrete. So I'm gonna avoid the trap of doing philosophy and theology as, as a, at the real concept and really focus on like, let's look at practices and let's look at, um, let's look at experiences and let's watch a lot of videos and listen to music um, and use that as the avenue into, okay, how does theory mesh with that? Um, and what, what should you value more, the experience or the theory? Yeah, that tangibility is like definitely necessary. Even in undergraduate, I had um, so I went to Villanova, so it was also Catholic, and mm -hmm. um, I took what they have is uh, because they're an Augustinian school. It was Augustine culture culture seminar, um, which mm -hmm. is basically like a mix of theology and philosophy. And the way that they did it is by taking particular theologians and philosophers, and kind of like we read their works and then kind of discussed it after. Um, mm -hmm. But I, you know. Even, even back then, I mean, that was so many years ago, but, like, I remember the more abstract it got, like, the harder it was to, like, understand how I was being evaluated, mm -hmm. um, but it was, like, also super interesting, so, mm -hmm. yeah. And am I remembering correctly, are you in the Jesuit pedagogy seminar as well? Yes. Um, how is that going? Um, is that a year-long course? Uh, it's only for the spring semester when they offer it, and we are three-fifths of the way four-fifths of the way through, basically. Um, and of course, now we're, we're experiencing it remotely, and we had our first Zoom meeting yesterday. Um, and it's it's been very helpful to, to get a better grasp of the, um, the history of the Jesuit project in education. Um, and for me, one of the, the key points that um, people are continuing to debate, well, actually, there's two, but one in our seminar is, um, what's the difference between I'm going to use sociology for this, but like the charisma of Ignatius Loyola himself, and then the institutionalization of that in Jesuit education. Um, and I think that one of the, the distinctions for that, uh, that makes it important is um, we continue to run into the challenge of uh, uh, configuring like teaching in a Catholic university, right? Um, mm -hmm. In a world that is no longer explicitly just Christianity or just Catholic. Um, and not that that's a bad thing, but that, there's a there's a different vision that needs to be articulated, um, mm -hmm. and and that that's a vision that that continues to be debated, um, and so looking at the history of you know what a particular person experienced um, and and how he tried to and his followers tried to put that into constitutions and structures and, and a vision um, has been very illuminating to see where where things are gained and where things are lost, um, and then of course it's a one of the interesting things about the seminar is it's interdisciplinary. So 
we've got three theologians, um, three people from English, um, one biology, and I think two economics, and one historian, perhaps. Um, and so we're all bringing um, our, our unique knowledge of, you know, this is this is what, what's at stake in terms of knowing, this is what's at stake in terms of communication, this is what I'm seeing in my pedagogical context, um, and, and exchanging, you know, what, uh, uh, what we're learning and what, what we want to do differently. And I, I find that very helpful to think outside of the theological box. Yeah, but it's so interesting because, you know, yours is almost most relevant to the, the um, Jesuit pedagogy and it's like, in it's, it's just, or at least most directly linked, mm-hmm. I would say, um, mm-hmm. where like, it must, like for, for economics, it's, it's kind of, um, in a lot of ways, valueless of a, of a field of study in the way that we don't make certain claims about spirituality or, or morality or anything. It's just right. about, you know, markets and how they function and how people yeah. actually interact with each other without making value judgments about that, mm-hmm. uh, kind of describing the world in that way. So I'm right. sure you have a lot to add to that, that um, discourse as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and we, we, um, we uh, but I think the I think the folks in uh, in my department who are in the seminar would, would agree with this, so I will use we. But um, there's a tension where each of us uh, in theology have a personal spiritual life, right, and even pastoral training in some cases. Um, and we're talking about something that has to do with the notion of God and ultimate values and ultimate destinies and things like that. But the tension that 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 um, we're, we're constantly wrestling with is how do I do this as a teacher where this is my life and spirituality, but I know that my classroom is not to, to put it theologically, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them. Like I, I can't baptize students in my course. That would be terrible. Um, and so it's been very interesting and helpful to see um, from, from the dialogue in the course um, where, where actually theology, even though it could have a privileged place in figuring this out, can learn a lot from the other disciplines and other techniques. I'm trying to articulate, um, kind of want to follow up about, um, can you say a little bit more about your experience um, as an instructor of a university and how that's been influenced by your, you said your pastoral training? Mm-hmm. Could you, yeah. what is that exactly? Well, um, funnily, I, I was never formally trained, like I took one class on on the basics of pastoral care, but I've done a lot of work throughout my life in, in the context of retreat ministry, uh, and I, I myself undergo um, the practice of spiritual direction. I see someone who's trained in this. It's it's like counseling, but specifically your spiritual life, um, and so uh, that certainly frames my outlook about what does it mean to be human and what does it mean to be a good teacher, um, and so what I try to do is... Um, I think I, I, my baseline in terms of being a pastoral teacher is to say to my students, and it's even in some cases it's become a, a code code word that they've latched onto. Um, just tell me if life happens, and if life happens, we'll extend the deadline. We'll figure it out. We'll 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 come back to the drawing board and do something entirely different. Um, and to know that if they wanted it, I could always point. I'm always happy to point them to particular resources. Um, that meet the needs that they're looking for uh, or articulating. Um, and so it's kind of pastoral in terms of availability rather than pastoral is like, I am going to walk with you in your life of faith 
um, as you conceive of it. Um, and I should also add that part of it too is I kind of want my students to see that um, life is about wholeness. So, and part of that wholeness for me is I do try to live out and express what this faith tradition means to me. And what it means to me is not necessarily then to baptize you right here and now, but to say like that I'm ready to talk about it and that I do believe that it contributes to a good. And so I'm going to try to live that way. It's, it's so interesting as, um, as an instructor to have that, all, that, that to be carried with you as well. Mm -hmm. Um, especially in the, in the subject of study that you teach. Yeah, yeah, it's um, it's it's a it's an interesting challenge that many of us face, and in fact, in 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 the graduate cohort, we do have people who are priests, um, or studying to be priests, and so um, even though that's not relevant to me, we do talk about like uh, how do I how do I manifest or use my pastoral training uh, appropriately in the context of the classroom. I think. Yeah. I was going to say, I think it's a really interesting question and one that I wasn't myself aware of. Um, and I think students always appreciate authenticity. And so I think to feel as though you would have to erase or censor a part of yourself is not necessarily the answer, but to understand that not all of your students are going to be theologically inclined or have as... Um, strong of a religious background as the instructor might have, but um, introducing yourself and your values and your perspective and just being open about it. Um, mm -hmm. And at the core, you, you know, as you and others care about the students and they'll feel that, they'll feel your authenticity, they'll feel that you care. Um, and I think regardless of differing religious beliefs specifically, that connection can always be there, you know? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Right. Especially with um, something as tricky as religion, where it is, it like some people even have like very visceral negative reactions to religion and organized religion and what right. it means for themselves. Yeah. 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 I, I think it, it, I also, it's helpful. I tell them from the beginning, like I decided to study politics and religion as a, as an undergrad at Ford and like, <laughs> and that, that kind of, uh, it has the effect of kind of disarming in a way, because um, they, they see that it's possible to do that, and then I'm not going to do it in a way that proselytizes. Um, mm -hmm. So so that, that, that's kind of the, the, the attitude that I try to maintain. Yeah. Yeah. So I think we have to go at 12. I'm sure we could talk for another hour. <laughs> um, but I think that this was good for now. Is there any final thoughts that you want to share about this semester or teaching theology more broadly? And I'll just add like whether um, you've seen that this move to online has, um, you know, maybe a, a minute or so about just like whether you've seen that it's taken a lot more of your energy and, you know, has that impacted the research portion of it at all? Uh, I think it's taken a different kind of energy uh, for me. Um, and certainly each person's experience is different, but I think one of the benefits um, that my class experience enjoys is we've already done some of our stuff in terms of asynchronous learning. And so uh, it wasn't a total reboot in my case uh, necessarily. Um, I think the challenge though, in terms of maintaining kind of the, the, the scholarly stuff um, and prepping my dissertation and things like that is it's, it's just different working exclusively from home. Um, mm -hmm. And 
sharing space in, in some ways. Um, I, I kind of miss having varied locations to, to clear my head and to try to work. Um, um, but that's the reality that we live in. And so I, I think for me, it's just a matter of figuring out you know, what I can do a little bit each day and chip away at what I need to do. Um, and also kind of just I mean, to come back to theologies, uh, I do believe in providence. And, and so if I, if I do the best that I can do, um, just hope that in the end that it amounts to uh, a salvageable semester, I guess. Yes. Yeah. I'm it's sure it will. I'm struggling. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, I, I guess one last thing. Uh, I mean, the graduate students in theology, we do a weekly um, happy hour. So uh, for the rest of the graduate student cohorts, I hope that's something that you can do with your department and we can do kind of meta. Um, across graduate students and to, to use this means as best as we can um, to maintain a sense of community even amidst distance. Yeah, well, Helene and I are certainly here for you and the other departments. Um, I think happy hour is a good idea, particularly within specific cohorts and departments when grad students already know each other. Um, but if, you, if, you're, if anyone in your department has any other initiatives or events that they want to move forward with, obviously, like the... GSA is here um, for all of you. So, all right, I, I think that's it. Great. Good. Well, thank okay. you for this conversation. Um, if there's anything else you need, I'm always happy to, to contribute. And this has been a lot of fun. Yeah, yeah, I learned a lot. Okay, so I'll, like, I'll turn off the Anchor app now, officially. Okay. All right, that's a wrap on our latest episode of GSA Office Hours with Dave De La Fuente. Uh, thanks for listening.